Amen. Last week, I examined the first five verses of this chapter. If you weren't here, I'd urge you to go ahead and listen to that message because I suggested at that point that this passage is helpful to examine through the rubric or through the lens of understanding there's spiritual warfare going on here. That Paul, as he's writing this letter, is engaged in spiritual battle. There is wrong thinking, there is wrong teaching that has been uh, promulgated, and people have begun to sort of be influenced by that. And so Paul is seeking to counter false teaching. And he's trying to speak on a corrective angle of those, a small group of supposed Christians, have come to town here among the churches in Galatia, and these teachers have been persuasive. They have actually taught in such a way and probably quoted a number of scripture verses, and they have been so persuasive that have left a number of people in that church, those members, and now that those members of the church are acting, Paul says, as if they are under a spell. And so Paul is writing with a sense of, I'm amazed, I am flabbergasted, I am in many ways dumbfounded and astonished. And I found another word, that uh, someone used about two weeks ago, caught me, I thought, oh, that's a strange word, and I found it again this week as a reaction of what Paul is feeling. It is a Gaelic or Scottish slang term, and it is the word this, he is gobsmacked. You say, what in the world? Gobsmacked, I like that. Gob is another word for mouth. And it is a face, sorry. And so he's saying... um, He says, if you hit me in the face, that's how shocked I am, gobsmacked. That's what he is in this text. I hope I didn't lose you on that. Okay, I'll go back from my Gaelic uh, terminology, go back to what we're saying here. Here's Paul. He is shocked, he is astonished, so much so that he can't believe how they've begun to have their hearts taken away and moving in a direction away from Christ, away from the gospel, and he is motivated by love to go to battle for the gospel to go to battle for the eternal joy of his fellow believers. And so in his writing here in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul is not offering suggestions. He is not making casual appeal for those people to reconsider the direction that they're headed. Along with defending his apostolic authority, that's what he did in the first two chapters of this epistle, and along with defending the only gospel of grace alone, his purpose in writing according to the living translation, uh, the New Living Translation of 2 Corinthians 10, is this. He's going to knock down Satan's strongholds by breaking down the proud arguments that keep people from knowing God. That's what he's doing in this text. And I believe that's instructive to our hearts because what we're watching here is how to use the Scriptures against false teaching and false ways of thinking which lead us away from Christ. My friends, that is not just for people who are apostles with a capital A. That's for you and me. We do spiritual battle every day for the issues of our hearts and what we think and what we believe and what we cherish. So last week, the Apostle Paul, as we looked at those first five verses, he compellingly appealed to those church members to remember back to their conversion. Remember back to the beginning of your spiritual faith in which, verses 2, verses 5, the experience in which they heard 
the gospel with faith. Don't you remember those tremendous uh, experiences and what God has wrought in your heart and life at that point and since then? And now in this section this morning, verses 6 to 9, the Apostle Paul takes up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and in this case, I'm going to argue he's appealing to the Hebrew Scriptures, which is, of course, uh, what most of them, probably oh, that's all they had at that time, and he takes the sword of the Spirit and he cuts to shreds the main argument put forth by these Jewish legalists, the false teachers. In a sense, he pulls the rug out from under them by taking one of their significant claims and he shows that it is not at all biblically defensible. Now, although these legalists may sound impressive, and they may have and probably were quoting scripture verses, and they talk on and on about keeping the law, so they're talking about the Hebrew scriptures, Paul demonstrates that their message is not biblically accurate. And so with precision and with accuracy, Paul is proving that the gospel of salvation in Christ is not achieved by keeping the law, but has always been and will always forever be by grace through faith alone. And so what we're seeing in this text is, and I'll start off with our first point this morning, and I'm going to show how we got to sort of set the context of what's going on. There's a twisting of Scripture, and we see the fruit of that as we think about what these false teachers are saying. Then secondly, I'm going to talk about the benefit of this careful handling and interpretation of the Scriptures, as Paul does that for us in these texts, in these verses. And then lastly, I'd like to think about some practical implications of what is taught in these verses. So first of all, the fruit of twisting Scripture. I want to take a moment or two here to clarify what these false teachers in this particular context, which we've said in the past, were a group of Jewish legalists. That is, they are all about the law and keeping all the detailed regulations of the law. Uh, And they are therefore coming around and they were claiming that to be a true child of God, you must be a child of Abraham. They were insisting that non-Jewish followers of Jesus, which would include a a large number of us, that non-Jewish followers of Jesus had to adopt the distinctive Jewish markers set forth in the Torah in order to prove that they were full-fledged children of God. Merely believing in Jesus was not enough. They had to be, according to these teachers, these legalists, People had to be circumcised and they had to keep other elements of the law in order to be fully accepted by God. Now notice you kind of get a capture of this this kind of thinking, a glimpse in this thinking in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel in which a group of Jews who had heard Jesus making some rather significant claims about who he is and what he came to do for them, they assumed that they were right with God. And they claimed in that text, they prided themselves on being Abraham's offspring. We are descendants of Abraham. We claim him as our father. And they said again that they knew and and that they indeed were uh, children of Abraham, therefore prided themselves about that. And their message was this, these false teachers, that if you Gentiles want to really belong to God, 
that you must become children of Abraham. And then, and probably most likely, they would add to that, in order to be truly a child of Abraham, well, look at Genesis 17.10. They probably quoted this verse. Genesis 17.10. God says, this is my covenant to Abraham, when you, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you must be or shall be circumcised. So, armed with this verse, and I'm sure many other verses that these legalists uh, were aware of in the Hebrew Scriptures that had to do with circumcision, they taught that the only way to become a child of Abraham was to be circumcised like Abraham. Apart from circumcision, they would claim, no Gentile convert could claim Abraham as their father or call God as their father as well. Now, to many of us, and let's be honest, to many of us, this seems like a rather frivolous controversy. Like, come on, what's the big deal here? We think to ourselves, you know, come on, Paul, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. But be sure to understand this point. These legalists were distorting the gospel of Christ. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 4 of Galatians, turn back there just a page maybe in your Bible, and look at chapter 2, verse 4, you'll notice that Paul calls them what they really are. He calls them false brethren. They're not truly brethren. They're false brethren. They seem like they're on the same page. They're not. And he urges as many people to be careful about joining with them because, he says, you're going to what? They're going to lead you right into spiritual bondage. They're going to lead you away from the gospel. They're going to lead you into the kind of life in which you are forced to keep a bunch of rules and you'll never never come to the end of them. That's next week's sermon as we talk about the demands of the law, if you want to live under the demands of the law. So we have to remember that these false teachers were confidently declaring that to be a child of God, to be a child of Abraham, to be accepted by God, you not only, the only way to do that is to rely not on the gospel promises given to us there, but you also have to add to that the works of the law. If the members of the Galatian churches adopted this false teaching, they would lose their freedom in Christ. They would lose their joy in Christ. And eventually, he says in chapter 5, verse 4, if you're going to buy into what they're saying to you, you're going to be severed from Christ. You're going to be estranged from Christ. And then he goes on to use that very interesting phrase. He says, you will eventually be fall from grace. That is, you will no longer have a sense of wonder and cherishing the grace that's in the gospel. You will then be relying upon yourself and the demands of trying to perform, 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 and grace has gone out the door. If they embrace the false gospel, they're going to cut themselves off from all that Christ has done for them on the cross. He's trying to bring them back to the cross. And I said, as we said earlier weeks, chapter 2, verses 21, the last verse of chapter 2, notice that Paul said, the effect of listening to these people and their teaching and emphasizing that you've got to do and do and do and perform and add to what Christ has done You're going to nullify and make void all that Christ did on the cross. So by inferring that they had, by this emphasis on the law, 
which is too much of an emphasis, I would suggest to you what they're saying is, essentially, the bottom line message is, you people have no need for grace. You can do it. You can do all that's necessary. You've got to do it. By gaining merit, by their performance, they were striving to save themselves by attempting to keep the law. Let's be very clear here in, this, in the understanding of what Paul's doing here. To understand this spiritual battle going on, we must understand that false teaching is not harmless hearsay. False teaching is built around damning lies. The evil one, the father of lies, takes great delight in adulterating the word of God. And he loves to twist. He loves to distort the truth of God. Isn't that what he did in the garden? There was very clear communication from God as to what was allowed, what was not allowed. Here comes the evil one, the tempter. Here comes the serpent. He says, are you sure about that? Did God really say that? You're not going to, that's not going to really happen. He is sowing, twisting, deceiving lies. That is his modus operandi. That's the way he operates. And what does Satan desire to do along with adulterating the word of God? He loves to distort and twist the truth of God. And he loves to exalt man. And he loves to steal the glory from Christ. And his goal, Satan's goal, is to persuade us to live independently of God. Now I want us to stop and think about that, what that looks like in your life and my life. If you find in your life a lack of joy, a lack of peace, a lack of sweetness in your relationship with God, I would suggest to you, if you look at it carefully, there's something going on in which you are living independently of God. Your hope and your, your, your joy and your delights are not in Christ. Something else has captured your heart and your mind, your beliefs. And here Satan is trying to convince these people, through these false teachers, that they can live righteously by trying harder. They can somehow gain a righteousness by outperforming other people, and so they're constantly comparing themselves with how well this person is doing with how well I'm doing. And I'm going to try to outdo you on things. That's what Paul was caught up in so long. And he was focusing on, having us focus on avoiding certain outward behaviors. So people can look really good on the outside. Oh, I don't do that. Oh, I don't do that either. No, I don't, no, I would never do that. And people begin to pride themselves on what they can avoid. Meanwhile, all sorts of sin issues reign in their hearts, and they don't treasure the gospel, and they're relying on themselves, and they really are in many ways cut off from Christ. The problem with all these things, when it comes to our thinking and false ways of believing, is that the problem is it feeds pride. And the problem that we run into when it comes to pride is that the cross of Christ, from which we receive all of this grace being offered to us through the cross of Christ, the cross confronts this fundamental problem that you and I all have, the issue of pride and putting ourselves in the center rather than putting Christ in our need for grace. Listen to what James 4, says, 4, 7 says. God is opposed to the proud. But what does he do? But he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, James says, they're under the mighty hand of God. And eventually he says in that text, resist the devil. 
so that the more I'm elevated in my mind to think that I can do everything that's necessary and it's all up to me, the more I'm filled with pride. And the focus is on me, me, me. Now, false teaching then, we could say, opposes God. False teaching elevates man's wisdom. False teaching replaces a relationship with God that's centered around grace that's found in the gospel with a system, a false system of rules and regulations which focuses on duty and determination. And so I am all the more convinced that what we see Paul doing here is something that you and I need to be doing every day. Every day. We have to fight against worldliness in the terms of our thinking. We have to fight against the false ways of thinking and believing and issues of our hearts, and therefore he is fighting for the gospel. How does he do it? He does it with the word of God. Now watch this. Let's move to our second point here. The fruit of false teaching is it will lead us away from Christ. It will lead us into serious trouble of pride and all of those things we just laid out. Number two, the benefit of careful interpretation of Scripture. The benefit. Here in these few short verses, verses 6 to 9, Paul takes the primary claim of the false teachers and he decimates it by how? by carefully and properly interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Paul knew his Old Testament, and he knew that circumcision, yes indeed, was mandated by God to the descendants of Abraham. That's what it says in Genesis 17. But he also knew that the gospel of grace alone is taught from the first pages of Genesis to the last pages of Revelation. So in his appeal to the scriptures, in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul points out what was recorded about Abraham before God told him to have his descendants circumcised. Ding, 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 ding. That's a huge point. He is arguing about what is true prior to all this emphasis on circumcision. This is a huge problem for these false teachers, and legalists. He has now really got them on the run. The legalists overlooked the story of God's grace shown to Abraham. You go back to the story of what we read earlier in Genesis 12, where God promises to bless Abraham. He promises to make of Abraham a great nation. And he even says, I am going to promise to give to you and your descendants, Abram, the land of Israel. Now say, now, if you're not aware of that, that's Genesis 12, verses 1 through 7. If you're not aware of that, you're not aware of this important point. None of those promises were made to Abraham in response to Abraham's performance. God didn't come and say, okay, well, Abraham, I've been noticing you, been watching you, and you've done this and this and this and this and this, and not so good here, but you've done this and this and this, and therefore I'm going to bless you. If you know the text of Scripture, if you know that account, he doesn't deserve any of those things. God's promises were based on grace. And if you go three chapters later, and I want to encourage you to do this, to find Genesis 15. It's on page 16 in your pew Bible. Page 16 in your pew Bible. 
we start with the promises of, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will give you this land, and I'm going to bless those of your descendants in Genesis 12. Then he repeats another promise that becomes more specific about that form of blessing. And he says to him, listen, Abraham in chapter 15, he says, I am going to bless you and your descendants, and your descendants are going to come as a biological descendant. Not with someone you adopt, not with someone that you might father through someone else, but between you and Sarah, your wife, from you will come your own biological offspring, and I am going to do for you what is humanly impossible. Because at that time, Abraham was an older gentleman in his 90s. His wife was infertile, and she was incapable of bearing children at that point. And on the basis of grace, God says, I am promising you that your descendants he said, look up in the sky, and I'm going to look at all those stars, which, by the way, we can't see half of them that I'm sure he saw because of light pollution, right? So the, the number of stars have been even more impressive as he looks up there and gazes at those. And God says, I'm going to make your descendants from your biological child, which is impossible to do on a human, on a human way of measuring, and I will do it on the basis of grace because I've chosen to do that for you. I'm promising that. And what does the text say? Well, we've been reading this as what Paul quotes in Genesis 3, sorry, in Galatians 3, 6, and Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a big statement. It's a big, big, big statement. And again, in pulling the rug out from underneath these false teachers, Paul is zeroing in on the results of Abraham's response of faith. God reckoned it to him. What does your translation say? Credited. Credited or reckoned are the two terms oftentimes translated there. What does that mean? The term in the original language is a, is a banking term. It's a financial term. And what he's saying, in a sense, is that having believed, God, in some sense, then opens a bank account and immediately transfers righteousness into Abraham's account. It's a, it's a very quick, one-time, boom, here you go. Let me think of another illustration. If you were to, let's say, uh, you're a renter, you live in a high-cost area like this is here, in this area, and you get into an arrangement where you're going to, with the owner of a house, you're going to rent the house, and as part of the understanding is, you're going to rent, uh, sorry, lease the house in order to buy it, a lease to buy. And so at that point, you pay rent for a number of, of, of months, and there comes a point later on that you and the homeowner have agreed that if you decide you are going to buy that home, you've lived in it, you think it's a good deal, it's a good location, whatever, and so you say, I want the rent that I'm paying, I want to use those to now purchase the home. And so the owner agrees to that. And so the renter then decides to buy it. The rent payments then are credited to you, the renter, as mortgage payments. A new status is conferred upon those payments that were made. And God then began, in the sense of Abraham, God began to treat Abraham as if he's living a righteous life at that point. He credited him something that had not been had before, righteousness. Even though Abraham remained sinful, 
And even though he was imperfect, and boy, you keep reading the story of Abraham, what does he do? He lies about his wife, you know, he's scheming, he, whatever. He's got all these issues that still go on in his life. But he was loved by God. He was accepted by God on the basis of grace, not his performance. Abraham was not made righteous instantly. He was declared righteous. And God credited a foreign or an outside righteousness to him. Now, here's the kicker. The reckoning that Paul cited in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is not something that Abraham earned that is so important to understand. It was not rewarded to him or paid to him as if it was some sort of wage. It was a gift. It was granted to him on the basis of grace through faith, period. And Abraham was justified before he did any good works. Slam dunk in terms of the false teaching that these legalists were alleging. Paul is saying, look, it doesn't hold any water here. Paul destroys the legalist speculations with this powerful verse given in its historical biblical context. And Abraham, we understand, was justified by faith before, long before chapter 17, when which he was told to be circumcised and have all of his children and descendants circumcised. The point here in verse 7 of Galatians 3 is that the children of Abraham are not those who keep the law, but those who live by faith. Those who have faith, verse 9, says the same thing. They believe and trust what God has actually said in his promise to save. And the focus then is not on our performance. It's not on us being people who are accomplishing it better than somebody else, but the focus is on God's provision. And God did for Abraham what he was unable to do for himself. He provided him an offspring. He provided him an heir. And what you have here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which he quotes there in verse 6 of Galatians 3, is a clear affirmation that no one, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Joseph, not Daniel, not Isaiah, no one is justified by good works. No person whether you're Jewish or Gentile, will ever be declared right with God by being a better person, by somehow avoiding something and doing something better than somebody else. It's always been and always will be by grace through faith. And Paul points back to an even earlier promise in Genesis chapter 12, in which he talks about the promise of God given to Abraham early on, saying, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And what we learn here is that God's plan of salvation has always been the gospel that declares justification is by faith alone. You say, well, what does this have to do with me? For some of us, we face times in our lives in which due to thinking that is not biblical, we find ourselves going through self-loathing, depressed times of thinking about how well we're doing what we should be doing. Oh, my anger got the best of me, and oh, 
I just really let off on that guy. Or the other person is saying, oh, I've been slacking off and I'm not doing the things I should be doing and praying. Or, oh, I'm, I'm slacking off and I didn't really speak up with my, my coworker when I should have talked about Christ. And, and so we focus on all the ways in which we fail to do what we know is taught in Scripture that would be the commendable thing to do that would honor Christ and seek to show our newness of life. And some of us continue to say to ourselves, well, yeah, I know I'm forgiven, but I have a hard time forgiving myself. May I suggest to you, my friend, you have bought into false teaching. You have slipped into legalism that somehow suggests that your standards, if you're saying that God, the God of the universe who has sent Christ to us, providing his own son to die on the cross, that you somehow do not think that Jesus did an adequate enough payment of the price of your sins on the cross, that therefore something else must be done. You must do some things to find your way back to God. That you need to bring something and say, Lord, here, I've got to give you something before you'll forgive me. Do you realize, my friends, it's a very subtle tendency but we kick dirt, we kick sand at Christ in a sense. And we sort of, uh, 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 sort of run our car of our life through the mud puddle and spray all that muddy water on grace. Saying, I'm just going to try harder and I need to somehow learn to forgive myself. My friend, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're focused not on Christ, you're focused on you and being a better person. And so Paul says, you've got to fight battle with that. You've got to use Scripture. And again, I ask myself, how many of us know the dangers of our hearts becoming deceived, lacking in joy, lacking in delight in Christ, lacking in a focus on Jesus, and we're thinking about ourselves. And much of that has to do, I'm convinced, with the lack of taking up the sword of the Spirit and thinking about, reading carefully, pondering, and then meditating on what I've read in the Word long enough to begin to say, why am I at the frame of mind I am? Why am I acting the way I am? What's the fruit of my life showing about what I believe and what's really going on in my heart? And we've never taken the Word and applied it enough and memorized the text of Scripture that speaks to the problem I'm struggling with enough to fully find ourselves finding joy in Christ again and focusing on the Gospel. It's a challenge we have to do. Some of us think, oh, that was years ago I came to Christ. My friend, it has to do with every day you walk with Christ and you renew your mind day by day by day. There's much more we can say about that. I want to move to our third point, which will tie into that as well. Point number three. I want to think about some implications here about understanding accurate Bible teaching. One of the things that we can walk away from this text, really, I hope you've sensed in a great and profound way, let me back up again and say, remember what Paul saw when he went to, back to the churches in Galatia? He went there, and some people, James and others associated with him, came from Jerusalem. These are church leaders. They sat down, and what was one-time fellowship among people who were different, didn't have much in common, different races, different ethnic backgrounds. They were sitting, enjoying meals together, celebrating the common bond of Christ. And here is Peter, one of the church leaders. He gets caught up in this false teaching, and he pulls away. And you begin to realize there's a dividing going on here, racially. There's a dividing going on between people's ethnic backgrounds. And let me say to you very clearly in this text, God's plan of salvation is for all people everywhere. Every race, 
every ethnic group, every person who speaks a different language, they're all part of this plan of salvation that God has. It is a universal plan of salvation in the sense that not everybody is saved. I don't mean that. I'm not talking about universalism. I'm talking about that God's plan of salvation is universal in its scope in that the gospel is to be proclaimed among all the people of the world, not just the people who are like you, who have the same color skin as you have, who have the same ethnic background that you have, who seek, speak the same language you have. God's salvation is meant for all people groups, not just Jews who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. The gospel is always intended for all the nations. Look at verse 8 of Galatians 3. The scripture foreseeing that God would what? Justify the, justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the what? All the nations. Better translation is there, all the people groups of the world. <clears throat> shall be blessed in you, Abraham. There's the sense in which God desired to see the plan of salvation and the gospel go to all of the people groups in the world. Unfortunately, so much needs to be done in that area. The challenge is huge. There are billions and billions of people who are not hearing the gospel in our world today. One of our core values in our church that we're committed to is the mandate that Jesus gave from Matthew 28 and other texts of Scripture in which he says he desires to see disciples made from all the people groups of the earth. And so we have, as one of our value statements, we value fulfilling the Great Commission through, through biblical evangelism locally and globally. Biblical evangelism locally and globally. And so the good news of the gospel is to proclaim, be to proclaim to all peoples. That includes the Muslims of Indonesia, the most populated, the, the, the nation with the highest population of Muslims is Indonesia. It needs to be proclaimed there, and it also needs to be proclaimed right here on Long Island among Muslims. It, it should be proclaimed to the Buddhists in Thailand, which I think we recently saw uh, uh, Patricia Harrigan showed us some photos and some of, the, some of the ways in which they worship among the Buddhists there in Thailand, but also right here in Port Jeff where they have a Buddhist meditation center. We need to proclaim the gospel to the Hindus of India as well as New York City. Whoever is ensnared in the strongholds of Satan, whoever they are, They've been deceived into thinking they can be right with God by doing certain things to appease him or to somehow avoid his displeasure by avoiding certain things or doing things better. They need to know the life-changing promise of God that everyone who believes in the promises of God in Christ, God reckons it as righteousness. That is a freeing, incredibly wonderful treasure trove of truth that so many people are desperately waiting to hear. We must be a part of that. That is our passion, that is our commitment. And we as a church are challenged to think, how can we better do that? And we seek to do it in many ways. There is great room for improvement, obviously, and we will continue to do so. The question is, how many of us know anything about any of those beliefs, those faith practices? How many of us know anything about Islam? How many of us know anything about Buddhism or whatever it is? Do we, do we take an interest enough to know how to speak and befriend those who may be practicing such things like that? 
I want us to think of one other practical implication in this text. Dealing with the implications of having a confidence in the scriptures, not in ourselves. A confidence in the scriptures, not in ourselves. You say, where did you get that out of this text? Look at verse 8. Paul, in quoting scripture, Paul, in taking up the sword of the Spirit, fighting against the false teaching that was going on there, wreaking havoc in the church, he insisted that, look at verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles of faith, preached, the scripture preached the gospel beforehand. Now, wait a minute. If you back up and you go back to Genesis chapter 15, who's doing the talking in that verse? It's God. The scriptures preach the gospel. God is speaking the gospel. Do you see how those two go together? What Paul is saying here is, in this citation in verse 8, Paul is affirming that what the Bible says is what God says. They are one and the same. There is no distinction between what God says and what the scriptures say. The Bible is God's written word. I'll give you a quote there by Philip Ryken. The words of the pages of the Bible come straight from the mouth of God. There are many people today who, when you affirm that, they look at you with a blank stare thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You mean you bought into all that crazy thinking? They are skeptics. They are people who deny. And let me tell you something. Most of those people haven't given more than 10 minutes of careful examination scripture. They've drawn this conclusion by what they've already concluded before they've even examined it or carefully thought about it or even looked into. Many, many reasons why there's a convincing evidence that the scriptures are indeed the word of God. Here's what my point. I could easily talk about that in apologetics and all that kind of thing. But what I want to show here is, what did Jesus do? How did he speak of the scriptures? Jesus, when he explained the events surrounding his death, his own resurrection, he's trying to explain these things to other people who are all upset. Again, the evidence of emotions showing that they have wrong beliefs, wrong thoughts, indicating that they need to be corrected through the scriptures. He does what? Luke 24, beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all of those scriptures. Jesus points them to himself in all the Old Testament scripture passages. In John 5, 39, Jesus says, These scriptures are they which testify of me. He says, Don't you realize the scriptures are pointing about me? We must take the sword of the word of God out of the scabbard. We need to use it. We need to use it to destroy any and all speculations, any ideas, any false ways of thinking, anything that is opposed to what God's truth is in the scriptures. And it is God's word that will knock down Satan's strongholds. And for many of us, that's what we struggle with. We struggle with the strongholds of things that we deeply embedded in our assumptions and our thoughts, even in the idols of our hearts, is the assumption that something or someone can satisfy me more than Christ. And that's not true at all. The Bible is not to be thought of as just merely an inspirational book. Oh, I just get so inspired. Oh, I think I can go out and conquer the world. No, no. That's what you find on all the motivational sports 
posters and things like that. Nike, you know, that's all that stuff. The Bible's not merely inspirational. It is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16. What does that mean? The word there means what? God breathed. It means God exhaled. Now let's do that for a second, shall we? Let's show what we're talking about here. Let's all breathe deeply. Now exhale. Okay, now why do you think Paul's saying exhale, God breathed? He's saying that the scriptures are from the mouth of God, as if God has spoken them, and therefore he is what? He is the author of these words. You say, well, what about all these human authors? Yes, they're human authors, but he is superintending. He is guiding them along. And what they have written, he has guarded and guided in such a way that you can bank on what's written right here. And we can take up what is written in the scriptures and you can use it against any false teaching and find yourselves finding your way through to the truth that will set you free. The truth that will set you free from the lies of the Satan that seek to bind us and take us away from the joy and delights we find in the gospel and in Christ. Scriptures are authored by God, and one of the greatest and precious, he says in Peter, that in the scriptures we find God's great and precious, magnificent promises. Too many of us live every day, we never even think about a promise of God. Because what? Because we're so focused on doing what we have to do. And we're doing it in our strength. And we've lost sight of the gospel, we've lost sight of Christ. We're just doing what we have to do. I just got to do it. I'm a mother, so I just do what I got to do today. I'm going off to work. I got to do what I have to do today. And all we think of is duty, duty, duty. And what we're, what we're trying to get you to do is to have, a, have the gospel, have the scriptures in your mind and in your heart, meditating upon them. He also says in Romans 15, 4, that the scriptures were given to us so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. The scriptures that give us hope. So many of us don't have any hope, nothing to look forward to, no reason to get up and, and to find the riches of what God has promised to us because we've lost sight of the promises of God in the scriptures that point us to what? To Christ. And so we run the race, and what do we do? We're looking down. We run the race, we look at, oh, look how far i got to go. We run the race, we're looking past us. Oh, look at the past, look what I did. I ran the wrong way. Keep your eyes on Christ. Let the words of Christ bring you hope, bring you a sense of encouragement, knowing that he is sufficient to save and to give grace to those who humble themselves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us not to just think that these truths that Paul wrote here are just for Galatians. Help us to see that, Lord, what he's doing here is he's trying to help us fight for the gospel and fight for the truth that we need to take up the same fight ourselves. And some of us, Lord, like to stand on the sidelines. We like to let other people do the battle. We like other people to uh, be engaged. And we just think that, Lord, somebody can do it for me or I don't really want to particularly get uh, inconvenienced. I don't feel like I want to be uh, uh, ruined some of my... My uh, time that I have is so little and so uh, demanding, and I don't want to take the time of my day to engage my mind in a, in a very careful thought and reflection upon the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you would give us a challenge once again today to be aware of the dangers of pride in our hearts, to think that we know better than you, that we can figure out life better on our own, to think that we can somehow make our way through this world and, and not 
need to have the light of your word shining us on the pathway to know where we're going. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to, not to be motivated again by, because we're trying to, to somehow do the right thing and by performance. Lord, give us a desire to humbly say, I need grace. I need guidance. I need, I need help. I need to fight against Satan. He was going to just try to do his best to take us away from the glory of Christ and to magnify pride in myself. And so, Father, I pray that you would help everyone here today to purpose in their hearts, to find time to meditate on the Word of God tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that, Lord, you'd help us to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I need grace. I want to live by grace. I, I need to know grace and your gracious promises to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart's desire. Give us, whet our appetite, Lord. Give us a greater thirst that will not be quenched by anything else this world has to offer except for Christ and Him crucified as revealed in the pages of Scripture. We pray these things in His name. Amen.